Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, big tech's assault on free speech and how we fight it, and a modest proposal to fix Canadian taxation. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. With three weeks to go until the American election, Twitter decided to become a player in the political process rather than simply a platform. Anyone who's been watching the slow and sometimes not so slow descent into this from big tech wouldn't be surprised. But nevertheless, it was egregious what happened on October 14th, which was also my birthday, which is how I remember the day. But I got sidetracked in the later hours of the day watching what was unfolding as Twitter decided to censor the New York Post and anyone wishing to to share a New York Post article about Hunter Biden. Welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North, Friday, October 16th. In the couple of days since then, we've had some new developments, but overwhelmingly, the same problems still exist and will continue to exist right up until the American election and beyond. And I know we tend to focus on Canadian stories here. The reason I'm focusing on this is because big tech censorship, big tech intervention in the political process, this may be manifesting itself in the United States, but is by no means strictly an American phenomenon. And it's entirely possible, probable in fact, that something like this could happen in Canada when the next Canadian election rolls around. Let's say True North has some exclusive story that Twitter decides people don't have a right to see. This is where we'll be. Now, there are a lot of things to unpack here, and I'm, I'm going to try to take a 30,000-foot view of matters so as to not get too in the weeds. But I, I do have to talk about the ideological component here, because when Twitter decides on this story being published, and the story, I mean, if you haven't read it by now, it's still on New York Post's website, nypost.com is that the New York Post got its hands on a laptop, a waterlogged laptop that had been dropped off at a repair shop, which ended up being passed to federal authorities and eventually passed to Rudy Giuliani. And on this laptop, uh, purported emails uh, between Hunter Biden and a Ukrainian official about a meeting that was set up by Hunter Biden with Joe Biden when he was serving as vice president, apparently some sexually incriminating footage of Hunter Biden. And there are a lot of questions about this, questions about the material, questions about the content. Was this actually a computer that Hunter Biden dropped off at a laptop at a computer repair store or were these hacked materials and and the computer repair story was just a cover? The thing is, no one has actually thus far made the claim with any evidence that there was a hacking here. And, And we know it's possible. I'm not saying it's not, but no one has actually made that claim. But what Twitter did is used its policy, its purported policy against the dissemination of hacked materials as its justification for censoring the New York Post and censoring its article. Now, as it stands, we're, what, 20 hours after this story uh, came out, and, uh, no, sorry, more than that, 44 hours after the story came out, and, and the New York Post Twitter account has not actually tweeted anything. Now, I don't know if they their account is still frozen, or if this is just by choice, where they're saying, you know what, we're not tweeting anymore, but that's important to know, because they went dark when most media outlets would have been continuing to do follow-up as the New York Post was and promoting those follow-up stories. And there were a great many of them. For example, how Joe Biden at his town hall on Thursday night was not asked a single question about the scandal. Not a single question about it. 
and how the mainstream media has been more focused on challenging the New York Post than it has with uh, going after a censorship, a form of censorship that actually harms free press in general and, and could be turned against any other media outlet in Canada. So this is why it's important here. Now, I've always been, and I know I've faced a great deal of criticism from a lot of people that watch and listen to this show for saying this, that I do not believe the answer to the big tech problem is regulation. I am a free market, conservative, libertarian type when it comes to these issues, and I believe that the free market is the answer, not government regulation. But Will Chamberlain had posted something on Twitter that I actually thought was, uh, it was directed at people like me, but I, I didn't think he was off base in saying it. He said, you know, today's the day that libertarians lost the argument on regulating big tech. And, and I'm not going to lie, and I said as much, it's not looking good for, for libertarians, but I've had some time to look at this and, and to think about this a fair bit more. And, and I have a couple of things to say on this that are important. Number one, and this is, I think, the first and foremost, you don't get to amend your principles based on how the political individual situations unfold. You don't get to say, ah, oh, well, I, I believe this. I believe this is important, but uh, you know what? I'm, I'm, uh, I don't like that. Ergo, I'm going to make an exception to what I believe. You, if you do that, you either have to reevaluate your principles or accept that your principles are not consistent. So that's the, the philosophical point on this. But the other aspect of this that I, I think is important here is understanding that I don't believe regulation would make any of this better. Right now in the United States, there's a Republican government, there's a Republican Senate. We know that the U.S. is summoning the uh, Twitter executives like Jack Dorsey to the Senate, and they'll have some theatrics there. But for the most part, yeah, you could have a, a little bit of that, and you're not going to fundamentally change the culture, because this is a cultural problem here. The big tech companies feel that they can just do whatever they want, that they feel they can actually go after free speech and, and do this. And censorship that comes from the state is an egregious form of censorship. There's also cultural censorship, and there's also corporate censorship. And these are all different, but they are still censorship forms, and we still have to look at them and understand them, and I would say fight back against them. Let's look in a Canadian context. Right now, we have Justin Trudeau and Stephen Gilbo saying that they plan to uh, put forward all of these regulations on big tech companies. They say they want to regulate Twitter and Facebook, and they want to make it so that these companies don't allow hate speech on their platforms. In this case, regulation is actually a conduit to encouraging more censorship from big tech companies. So when you have a government that is prone to censor and does not want people to be able to speak out about whatever the issue is or use the uh, sort of broad and ill-defined term of hate speech to go after speech they don't like, you actually have government regulation of big tech as a conduit to impose censorship. So once you go down that road of saying that, yes, we believe it is appropriate for government to regulate the content and regulate the management of social media companies, you are giving government license to go in the exact opposite direction of what you think you're trying to do and, and what you want to do. So you always have to assume 
that any power you give government will eventually be used by a government whose values and views are unfavorable to you. So you can't just say, well, because we think the government right now is on side with this, we can uh, justify this because you're going to be sorely, sorely disappointed when it's used against you. So I don't think regulation will make anything better in the long term because we know that regulation always goes down a very dark and very bad road. Now, this is, again, why I still hold to my views that we need to find a free market solution to these things. I will say it's harder and harder to do that. And what I think New York Post should do and other media outlets is start diversifying their online presence. Make it so that you are not basing your entire business model on Twitter and Facebook and giving these companies so much power over you. And this is very difficult. And I say this as someone who has frustrations with Twitter and Facebook, but I also use them. I use them to communicate with people. And yeah, I have my own website and my own mailing list, and you can uh, join up at andrewlawton.ca if you'd like. But what I'm doing here is trying to take advantage of a great many platforms, True North's website, Facebook, Twitter, I'm on Parler now, and trying to communicate people with directly. I know that I don't have a right to be on any one of these platforms. I know that they are not, as has been argued in some court cases, the modern example of the town square where anyone has license to it. They are companies, they can set out their own rules in their own terms. New York Post has not been censored in some senses because it still has its own website. They are still posting content, but they were censored because they got into bed with people that were offering no protections to them and people that could decide on a whim, we're going to rip your content offline. We're going to deny other people the right to share your content. And that was what happened here. So the answer to this is for, I think, people to go back to how the internet was in the early days in many respects, which is to start supporting your own brand and not letting someone else hijack that. I would love to see social media companies move more towards a model, even if you have to pay them to use them, if, if you're a, a big publisher, that way you at least get some sort of a contractual relationship with them. For example, if New York Post's web host, whoever hosts its website, had decided, you know, we don't like this Hunter Biden story either. We're going to pull your website offline. Well, New York Post would be able to say, hang on, we're in a contract with you. You cannot do this. And if the company says, well, we have these terms of service, New York Post could be like, you know what? That's BS. We're going to another company. So you have to take this look of self-preservation. If you assume the worst of everyone, I know that's a myopic way to live, but if you assume the worst of these sort of actors, you're going to not be surprised when these dynamics happen. So I would say to anyone and everyone, as you move forward in these debates, know that social media companies only like to pay lip service to free speech. They aren't actually interested in cultural free speech. These are the same companies that will permanently suspend your account if you use the wrong pronoun. I think my colleague Lindsay Shepard had her account locked at one point for supposedly misgendering someone. And what's interesting, though, is that I think Twitter grossly miscalculated its response here. And this just goes to show how many uh, powers people up at Twitter headquarters are having, people that might not even be higher-ranking officials. Because uh, you saw this on Twitter that Jack Dorsey had said that it was wrong. We updated our policy and enforcement to fix. Our goal is to attempt to add context, and now we have capabilities to do that. He apologized not for the blocking earlier on, 
but he apologized for our communication around our actions. He said blocking with zero context as to why we're blocking is unacceptable. Where I was like, no, 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 you, you added too many words in that sentence. Actually blocking it is fairly unacceptable. Legal, but unacceptable. And if I were the New York Post, I'd be severely, severely considering the possibility of a defamation or libel claim. I'm not an American lawyer. I'm not a Canadian lawyer either, for that matter. But what Twitter has done here is actually maligned New York Post reporting by saying that the uh, information that was in the Post story was the product of hacking. And as I said, well, I would not say that is impossible. So far, there has been no evidence or what I've seen anyway as credible reporting that has said it was hacked. This was a determination that Twitter made, and Twitter has now gone beyond auditing what you're posting on Twitter, but auditing what is in a story that you may link to on Twitter. So the idea of Twitter fact-checking certainly shatters this idea that Twitter has been claiming that it's purely a, a neutral platform and not a publisher that has its own bias, because they're now trying to effectively regulate not just the content of what's on Twitter, but the content of what's on other platforms that people may link to or share on Twitter. And as of Thursday, uh, Twitter's, uh, what's your title here? The Legal Policy Trust and Safety Lead uh, had put a thread forward saying that they are amending their policy. So it sounds like the New York Post story is going to be fine now. Maybe, maybe not. She says, over the last 24 hours, we've received significant feedback, I'll bet, about how we enforced our hacked materials policy. After reflecting on this feedback, we've decided to make changes to the policy and how we enforce it. She says that they have added new product capabilities such as labels to provide people with additional context. We are no longer limited to tweet removal as an enforcement action. She says this will help people to assess content for themselves, which she argues better serves the public interest. She says they'll no longer remove hacked content unless it is directly shared by hackers or those acting in concert with them. She said we will label tweets to provide context instead of blocking links from being shared on Twitter. Because it was at the point where you could not even send it in a direct message to someone. If you try to send that link, it would just give you this uh, error message of sorts where you couldn't actually do it. So now now they're saying, okay, we're just going to contextualize it. And this is what Facebook and Twitter and YouTube have been doing with, you know, Trump's tweets and posts for a while with a lot of things that are related to COVID-19 or climate change. In fact, I think we even had one of our <laughs> things given that little warning label at some point. Now I like try for it. I try to just say something that, you know, triggers the ire of the social media censors. And again, I'm still using these platforms because in a lot of ways, our world has been structured around them, wherein these are the ones that you need to use to communicate. But my call to all of the conservative billionaires out there who are frustrated with this is start putting money into your own. I mean, Parler is an example. It's got a decent enough audience. I think there are a lot of technical issues on Parler that I would still like to be worked out. YouTube is one. I mean, you've got all of these companies like uh, Fox and M MSNBC and CNN and NBC and CBS and ABC that are putting their content on YouTube. I mean, these are multi-billion dollar companies that have the ability to create their own video uh, platforms. And some of them do, and they, they are all terrible, though. 
none of them are as good as YouTube as far as the technical experience to the user. Why are people not making alternatives to these things? Why is everyone accepting the premises that these three countries, or I say companies, but they are like countries in a lot of ways, that these three companies get to control the internet, Google, Facebook, and Twitter? And that's the problem is that people for too long have been capitulating to this narrative, which is why when something comes along and they decide three weeks before an election, you know what, the New York Post, you don't get to be a media outlet no more. Uh, I realize that's poor grammar. It's a Norm MacDonald reference. You don't get to do this anymore. Uh, then we are all like, oh, well, what? it's censorship. Yeah, well, a load of good that is if you can't get your stories out with three weeks to go until an election. So yeah, people can have the Senate committee hearings. They can do all this. But if we don't push back against the cultural climate, not just the cultural climate that supports censorship by big tech, but the cultural climate that doesn't look for any alternatives to these, no regulation will save you from what comes next. We'll be back in a few moments with more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. I know it's not tax time just yet for most people, but at the same time in Canada, it's always tax time in some form. Even if you're not filing them, you're certainly paying them, which is why a really great new book came out was one that I wanted to spotlight here. It is called The Grumpy Accountant, One Fed Up Tax Pro's Practical Plan to Fix Canada's Senselessly Complicated Tax System. It's part tax advice, part novel, and part analysis on the state of taxation in Canada and the author is accountant Neil Winokur, who joins me on the line now. Neil, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. It's funny, I actually spoke about tax policy a few weeks ago on the show, and I was just like relentlessly mocking the fact that I was even having the discussion, because I'm like, no one's going to care about this. And then everyone did. Everyone actually found it as enjoyable as I did. So uh, when I learned of this book and, and read through it myself, I'm like, I, I got to get Neil on the show, so I appreciate it. You're a grumpy accountant. I'm a grumpy taxpayer. Explain <laughs> to me why there is so much to be grumpy about in Canada and why you wrote this book. Yeah, so it, it's interesting. The The reason why there's so much to be grumpy about, it's most people think it's because of the actual amount of tax that we all have to pay. And of course, that does make a lot of people grumpy. But what really gets me going and makes me grumpy is not the amount of tax that we're paying, but the complexity and the amount of bureaucracy that we have to deal with in order to file our tax returns. And even f without thinking about how much tax we're paying, it's the method and and the way we have to file our tax returns, that's what makes me grumpy. I realized after a certain number of years of doing my job that the job of a tax filing accountant should not even exist. And that's why I wrote the book. I wanted to shed light on that particular aspect of our tax system. It's too complicated. We need to simplify it. We can simplify it. Other countries have much simpler systems. And that's why I wrote the book. The book itself, I mentioned earlier, is part novel. It follows a, a fictional character named Jerry, and I'll talk about that in a moment as he goes through all of these stages of life from, you know, getting a job, paying taxes, getting a tax refund, an audit, marriage, kids, even death and all of this. And the one recurring theme is that at every stage of life, government is there with its handout. Yeah, exactly. What The way our tax system is designed is that um, we have we seem to have this philosophy in Canada of the idea that government is there to always lend a helping hand. And it's not only about help with actual 
money being transferred, but it's with deductions and credits that have are that are riddled into our tax system for every stage in life and every life event. There's a tax deduction or credit, which when you really think about it, it doesn't really make any sense. And that's what really bothers me. So if you are in university or college, there's tuition credits. If you have children, there's childcare. And if you're if you're trying to save money, well, there's RSPs and TFSAs. And and if you, if you have some health problems, there's medical expenses. And they're all there to help us and to maybe make the tax system more fair. Like each credit and deduction has a valid reason and rationale for it. But the downside of it is that when you're trying to target every single life event and every single special interest group, then everyone wants a tax credit. So if you're a volunteer firefighter, you have a tax credit. Look, I love volunteer firefighters, they're heroes. But do we need a tax credit? Like every single stage in life and every every little thing you do, there's gonna be a tax credit or deduction. And that just creates all this complexity. No one knows what credits or deductions there are, um, and no one can file their own tax returns because of all of this. And there is an inerrant unfairness in it as well. And, and you touch on this, I don't know if it's intentionally or not, in the book, where one person with the same income as another has a vastly superior tax return because of how many of these credits they avail themselves of. And I don't fault people for using whatever tools and, and tricks they can legally to reduce their tax burden, but it means that it's very unlikely that people are going to get as, tax, as low a tax amount as they're legally entitled to because the system is so complex to navigate. Exactly. And those with lower incomes and more modest incomes who might not be able to afford um, the best professional tax advice that they can, they can obtain each year might be missing out on certain deductions and credits. In fact, um, in the throne speech that happened uh, in the end of September, there was one line thrown in, thrown in there into the throne speech about automatic tax return filing that the CRA actually might start filing the tax return for the taxpayer, those with very low incomes, um, because right now there's about a billion dollars of tax credits that people are missing out on, actual like GST credits and money that they're entitled to, but they're not filing their tax returns because it's too complicated. So the CRA is saying, oh, we'll do it for you. But that's a perfect example of how the way our tax system is designed, the more money you have, the more you're able to afford the higher professional fees, um, the more you can be assured that you're actually getting all the deductions and credits you're entitled to. And that's a big flaw in the system. The more deductions and credits you have, then the more complicated it is, and then the more money you need to spend to file your tax returns. So we're actually spending now $7 billion a year. That's just families, $500 on average per household to get your tax returns filed. That doesn't include small businesses and corporations. So it's a lot of money. And the budget for the CRA is almost $5 billion a year now. It wasn't like that 10 years ago. So it's gotten out of hand. And what my idea is, let's simplify it, get rid of deductions and credits, you lower the rate. And most people agree with this. It's just a lack of political will and courage to actually get it done. I want to talk about the political aspect of this very shortly. And the book is not political, I, I will say. I think it really does appeal or should appeal to people of, of broad ideological or, or political persuasion. But when mm. you talk about the uh, tax return idea, I have always, just as a lifelong Canadian, taken for granted that this is how filing taxes is. And I actually didn't realize until reading this that there are millions of people in other developed Western nations where a majority of the populations, people with simple uh, employment situations actually don't have to file tax returns at all. This is not a, a universal thing, evidently. 
Right. For example, in the UK, in the United Kingdom, if you're an employee, okay, and you have no other income, so you don't have self-employment income, you don't have capital gains or investment income to report, you have a, what you know, here we call it a T4, whatever they call it there, and you have no other income, you don't have to file a tax return at the end of the year. Your employer is filing the T4 to the government, and that is the tax return. And that's what we do here. Your employer takes your T4, they file it to CRA, they give you a copy. The CRA has your T4 already. In fact, if you file your tax return and you make a mistake in putting a number on your T4, the CRA will automatically correct it for you and send you the reassessment. Yeah, because they so, already know the, the correct number. Yeah. Exactly. So why do we have to file it? It doesn't make any sense. So and that's when you start to get into like automatic filing by the government, pre-filled tax returns. And there's pros and cons of that. I'm not crazy about that idea because then we have to, you know, think about, well, do we trust the CRA to file our tax returns for us? I don't know if that's such a good idea. But if we move to a really simple system, employees, so those who are have a T4 and nothing else, should not even have to file a tax return at the end of the year. And those who are self-employed, I talk about this a lot in the book, about maybe four or five chapters in the book deals with self-employed and small business owners. Um, they should have a much simpler time filing their tax returns. And I propose ideas on how to simplify things for them as well, because the bureaucracy that they, anyone who's self-employed, has their own small business, has to go through is absolutely ridiculous. It's very unfair. It's very burdensome. It's costly. It's complicated. And it keeps people up at night. And um, it's the, the, the whole system is ripe for a major disruption, for sure. Yeah, and, and it actually disincentivizes people uh, creating businesses in, in some cases. I remember, for example, when I started working for myself, setting it up was very daunting, and I, I eventually you know, worked my way through it and, and had some professional help with that process. But I know there are a lot of other people that would look at this and say, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. People that are, are terrified of the idea of making a mistake and, and risking the penalties and, and all of that. And, and that is not an environment for growth, for economic growth, for growth of business in in a, a country that I think desperately should be welcoming growth. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the regime that small business owners have to comply with. I mean, think about, let's say you own your own small business. It's just you. Okay. So you're an owner manager mm -hmm. and you incorporate because a lawyer told you, well, you really should have it in a corporation. So now you have to follow your personal tax return, your corporate tax return, pro your, your GST return. And depending on your province, HST, some provinces, you actually have to file a separate sales tax return to your province. So you have GST to CRA and you have provincial sales tax return to your province. So you have personal corporate sales tax. And if you want to pay yourself a salary from your own corporation, a T4, your corporation has to deduct tax for you from your own salary you're, and you're paying double CBP. Nobody can figure this out on their own. They're forced to hire people like me to help them. And it just like, it really bothers me because they shouldn't have to do this. So for example, it, in the United States, our neighbors to the south, if you have your own corporation, legally, you can have a corporation. It's separate from you for legal purposes. But from a tax filing perspective, it can actually just be one. I think they call it an S corp. And, and the way an S corp works, you have one tax return filing. It goes right onto your personal tax return. It's the same tax filing. And the net income from that S corp is just considered your personal income. So it's much simpler. And we need to look at ways to simplify this for small business owners and those who are self-employed. And I think that that would probably encourage more people to try and venture out on their own because right now you, you try and venture out on your own and 
you might not even know your obligations that if you hit $30,000 of revenue in, in a, in within, you know, 12 months or four fiscal quarters, uh, you have to register for GST and HST and start collecting sales tax. And a lot of people don't even know that. And they get into a lot of trouble and self-employed people have to save their revenue to pay tax. They're now tax collectors for the government. If you're self-employed, you're a tax collector and they don't pay you for it. So it's, um, it, it's not easy. It's not easy. It discourages people. And I think some of the ideas in the book to simplify it on a massive scale, it might put me out of a job and other people like me, but I think it would be so beneficial for millions of people. I'll find something else to do. I'm, I, I'm not too worried about that. Yeah, and I was actually going to ask about that because you are, in, in a lot of ways, trying to create a tax system that would put you out of work. And, and we know that, you know, in law, for example, the industry gets more and more complex so that lawyers will always have a market share, whereas you're proposing something that for most Canadians would actually make it uh, quite easy and simple to such an extent that they wouldn't need a, a tax professional every year. Right. So look, I'll have to adapt my business model. Um, accountants can do a lot of other things. We could still advise business owners and people who are self-employed about their business finances, but we don't, maybe that tax role could disappear. That that would be my goal and my dream for Canada for the future. Um, there are, you know, thousands, I think this, the CRA has 40,000 employees. There's thousands of accountants across the country. And there's quite a few tax software companies that make a very nice profit off of millions and millions of Canadians who download TurboTax and UFile and these tax software that they could download online and that and uh, to, in order to file their tax returns. So yeah, in my plan, all of the, the above that I mentioned would have to adapt uh, their business model and adapt to a new reality. But it's not fair that I should continue to earn a living at the expense of the suffering of millions and millions of Canadians in, in terms of just like why if, if we were designing a tax system from scratch today, imagine Canada never had an income tax. And we said, you know, it's 2020, we need an income tax. There's no way in the world we would design the system that we have right now, right? That would never happen. We would design something much simpler. And in 1917, when they first established income tax, it was supposed to be temporary just to fund the end of World War I. Um, and of course, it's not temporary. We have it over 100 years later. But the Income Tax Act in 1917 was only 11 pages long. And today it's 3,000 pages. Nobody understands it. N nobody can read it and really understand it. Account a lot of accountants don't understand it. People at the CRA don't understand it. People make mistakes all the time. And so I think there's something inherently wrong with it that we really need to uh, fix, like in a real way. And and I know that it's kind of meant to be a, a sillier story to illustrate the absurdities of, of the tax system. But I mean, you get dark. You kill people off in this book. It's it's not well, don't like ruin this it. has don't, this is more yeah. of a thriller than I think I expected when I I started reading. But but you do reveal again the every stage of of life uh, taxation. And I, I won't go through the whole thing, but you do kind of end it in in a way with sort of a manifesto of what you'd like to see. And and a lot of it comes down to really putting forward the simplicity, learning from other countries. So we don't need to reinvent the wheel to do this. And I would ask you, I guess, what is the biggest, most significant change that would really make the most difference in your view? Something that a government could put into effect almost immediately if it wanted to. Okay, so you asked me what's the biggest one. I'm going to give you my top three. Okay, okay? perfect. So number one for employees, like I said, we need to eliminate, this sounds so crazy, 
but it only sounds crazy because we're so used to what we have right now. So number one is eliminate and abolish every single tax deduction and credit and just lower the tax rate to make up the difference. And the T4 becomes a tax return. So no more tax return filing. T4, that's the tax return. That's it. Forget about it. Now, self-employed people, what I propose is very similar. They might have to report a tax return, but I want to be one page. That's it. One page, nothing else. Revenue. No expenses, no deductions, no CRA audits. Here's your revenue, and you pay a lower rate of tax because we're not claiming expenses. For self-employed people who want to claim expenses, give them the option. So you have option A filing, option B filing, and a self-employed person can choose which option. Okay, so that's number two. And number three, GST, HST. If you're self-employed, you have to collect GST, HST. As soon as you hit $30,000 of revenue, $30,000, that number comes from 1991, over 30 years, That's or almost 30 years. That's crazy. We, what, we haven't had inflation since 1991. Hmm. That 30000 should be closer to maybe 60000 or more. So we need to increase that small supplier limit, and that would really help people who are in the income range. They are earning 30000 $60,000, and they have to deal with collecting HST, GST, dealing with this. That we, I think we need to relieve them of that burden and increase that small supplier limit. So those are things that the government should really start looking at as soon as possible. It might take a few years to undergo this review, but that's okay. Even if it takes five or 10 years, it will be worth it in the long run. And a lot of these things may reduce government revenue modestly, but at the same time, you think of how many billions would be saved by not having to bureaucratize everything, regulate compliance, audit, investigations. I mean, for example, you would eliminate a lot of fraud potential if you take away expenses and filings. You would eliminate a lot of fraud potential on, on both employer and employee sides of things. And you would simplify it in a lot of ways on the government side of things and on the taxpayer side of things. Oh, for sure. And actually, what I try to propose in the book is actually a revenue neutral plan for the government. And when I wrote the book, like you were alluding to before, it, it does, it, it can and does appeal to people across the political spectrum, because I actually had a few people review the book as I was writing it and giving me feedback. And a couple of those people were people who are, are in the complete opposite ends of the political spectrum that I am. So I'm more of a I don't know what you would call it, fiscal, conservative, libertarian type. And I had people who are like what I see as extreme, crazy leftists and <laughs> um, people that I'm close with and I enjoy talking to. And they reviewed the book and gave me some great feedback and they really enjoyed it. So if we abolish the deductions and credits, the flip side is you lower the tax rate. And in theory, and I show this in the book, that can be revenue neutral to the government. Um, so it could be a plan that everyone could get behind and, and yeah, it reduces that potential for fraud. And also potentially if we have a lower tax rate with no deductions and credits that could bring right now, Canada has a huge underground economy because the, the personal tax rates are so high and you have GST, HST on top of that, that self-employed people have to charge. So many people are doing cash transactions and not paying any tax mm -hmm. at all on it. If we had a lower actual rate of tax that was advertised, imagine if the government could say, look, everyone earns their first $50,000 of income, zero tax, and then from 50 and up, you, play a, you pay a flat rate 15 or 20%. More people might actually come out of the underground economy and say, you know what, that's not so unreasonable. If I make 80,000 a year, I'm not paying any tax on the first 50, 
and I'm only paying 20% above 50, you know what, I maybe I pe people will say, you know what, I'll pay that. Because we know that the government does provide us services and, and, and we do need a government in, in some respects. So people might accept that. And that ironically could actually increase government revenues as more people come out from the underground economy. Yeah, very much so. And and you do do a really good job at exposing a lot of the contradictions in these things too. Like for example, if you uh, work at a, an office downtown and you have to pay for parking when you go to work, you can't write that off. But if you were self-employed and a contractor, you could and, and a lot of these things. And I, I think that when people read through it, a lot of these things are intuitive because you live them. But at the same time, it really reinforces in simple terms why things are so ridiculous. So hopefully a, a kick in the pants to get people to push for some change. The book is The Grumpy Accountant, One Fed Up Tax Pro's Practical Plan to Fix Canada's Senselessly Complicated Tax System. The author, <laughs> Neil Winokur, joins me on the line now. Neil, thanks very much. Uh, great job in the book and appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. That does it for me. We will be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. If you enjoy the show and want to hear more of it, we need your support. Head on over to andrewlawtonshow.com and click donate to support the work that we're doing and stand up for independent media. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news. <laughs>